Welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup, your weekly insight into everything Ulster Rugby related. Adam McKendry back on hosting duties this week as we look back over a good start to the season on Friday night for Ulster, look ahead to what could be a more tricky trip to Wales than what we initially thought it may be, and also who could be in line for an Ireland call-up whenever Andy Farrell names his squad for the conclusion of the Six Nations later this week. Joining me to do so are rugby reporters Jonathan Bradley. Hi, how's it going? And Michael Sadler. Hello. I, I don't know about you guys, but I really enjoyed being back. I got my fingers frozen off because it was that cold by the time the game ended. But I thought it was great that we were actually back watching a game in person at Kingspan. Yeah, it was deceptively cold. <laughs> First game of the season, you normally think uh, think late August, so you're not too bad. But uh, no, it was freezing. That was due to the 8.15 kickoff, I'm sure, wasn't it? What is yeah. up with those 8.15 kickoffs? Like still the floodlights. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I've ever had post-match done after about half ten that was very late by the time we were leaving the guys were locking up the car park at the back this is past my bedtime these finishes now <laughs> I like to be locked out of Ravenhill and then locked in Ravenhill the one time that's another story you count yourself lucky it didn't happen to you Adam <laughs> that, that'll be an off-season story we have to do whenever we have our podcast and we have no action to look at but we do have action to look at, so we'll not spend any more time talking about our experiences. We start with that five-try win over Benetton, a bonus point to open the 2020-21 campaign for Ulster and plenty of positives compared to some of the efforts from just after lockdown. Johnny, what were your biggest takeaways from the game? I thought it was really entertaining. I didn't really know what to expect going in because it's obviously not your average season opener. There shouldn't really have been any... Rust, I suppose, really, even though we saw change team, a lot of guys that hadn't played in those knockout games coming in. But the game to me had all the hallmarks of a first game of the season, despite end of last season, only having been two weeks ago. Like there was an awful lot of, uh, I suppose, ambitious play. There was a fair bit of ambitious play that uh, didn't come off. There was encouraging aspects to it. There was an awful lot to work on. I thought, especially just given the selection and the result, it has to be seen as um, a good night at the office, but you shouldn't, I don't think, gloss over the amount of uh, work on, so they'll have taken away from it either. Yeah, Michael, as Johnny mentions there, quite a brave selection with a with a backline that had more players under 24 than over 24 in it. Um, what did you make of how the backline got on in, in particular whenever you have Michael Lowry playing fly half, James Hume and Stuart Murray in the centres? There are a lot of young guys in there, but they certainly seem to flourish. I thought they did pretty well. Um, Benetton decided to target that area, I think, quite rightly so, with Stuart Moore. Uh, you know, his first game and also Michael Lowry not necessarily seen as being the strongest tackler in the world. So they kept going at that channel. But I thought generally they, they did pretty well, reasonably well considering. It was also interesting because I think all the back line were all from Ulster bar John Cooney in that game, if I'm right thinking, which must be quite an unusual situation, I suppose, as well. Um, but I, 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 thought, I thought they went pretty well. I thought it was quite encouraging. And when they got the opportunity to attack, they looked ambitious. They looked to have good footwork and look to have an appetite uh, and vision to find space. 
Um, I, and it was an interesting and probably the right time to try them in that environment. I'm not so sure how well it would necessarily go against some of the theoretically better teams. I mean, I think it, it was fairly encouraging. Yes, Ulster had a very wobbly part in the game, not you know, mainly due to the fact I suppose they were down to 14. And there were areas that weren't great. But I think overall, yeah, I mean, that 10, 12, 13 axis, I thought, worked pretty well. Yeah, I think a lot of people got very excited whenever Stuart Murray with his first touch decided to go on a 45-meter run that really just backed up all the pre-game hype he'd had. Yeah, it was a nice wee, uh, nice wee goose step um, from him deep in his own territory and really sort of set Ulster on the front foot to give them the territory that they ultimately, now it was four or five minutes later, but the territory that they ultimately ended up scoring that first try through. Uh, and he had obviously a couple of really nice moments beyond that as well. You know, he wasn't lagging in confidence. That uh, show and go proved pretty uh, pretty handy for him as well. Broke that out a few times. Confident even in terms of kicking. Um, I thought his decision-making with the ball was really good. Um, obviously, again, you know, there were there's not an awful lot of polish there in some aspects of the game, but that you wouldn't expect that to be the case when he's only played three times and has one start. So I thought him and Hume dovetailed together pretty well in terms of a partnership and the sort of 10, 12, 13, certainly with ball in hand, looked dangerous, albeit obviously Ulster's um, most devastating weapon had very little to do with them because it was their uh, their mall that really um, dragged them back into the game, I suppose. I think James Hume is certainly being overlooked on Friday night. I mean, he's he's not totally devoid of praise, but I, I went into the game thinking, you know, about how young the team was, and I sort of overlooked the fact that James Hume is still only 22, maybe even 21. Um, I think he's just gone, or recently just, gone 22. Just gone 22, so he's still a very young guy, but whenever you've got Stuart Murr starting inside him, you instantly think of Hume as the experienced centre, but... The guy's only 22. He's only played a handful of games for Ulster. And I thought he was so composed from outside centre. I thought he had another fantastic game. He's just continued to take his game up since lockdown. So that's just another feather in the cap for for that back line. And, I mean, Michael, the fact that they went over for three tries in the first half, all of them quite nicely worked as well. It, it must be very pleasing for Dan McFarland and presumably for Dwayne Peel as well that, you know, for guys who haven't played that much together at the senior level, were able to click so well? Yeah, I think so, particularly as well in, in view of what had happened in the previous two games. It was good that, uh, that something like that came off. Um, yeah, they, no, they, I, I don't think Hume has been overlooked. I think Hume um, has, has played a very important role and is growing into this role and is now looking uh, really like, uh, you know, what, what he, I think, will, will become this season, quite possibly a regular starter. Yeah, I mean, all the, the all, you know, the post-match was all fairly positive, very upbeat. It did paper over areas that were clearly not functioning right. Some of the defending wasn't right. Uh, it, it just, they, you know, uh, Benetton had a lot of, uh, got a lot of traction when they moved it wide. Yeah, I think if you, sort of, if you look at those three sort of international uh, strike runners that they have in their back three, they were quite clever in the way that they held them very deep so that one they were coming onto the ball at pace and two they were really able to target the channels that they wanted to target so 
they got an awful lot of joy there through uh, through their back three, who were all all pretty impressive. Just I suppose one area that um, Michael didn't mention, just like an awful lot of missed tackles in the tight five. I thought, especially in the build up, some of Benetton's tries. That would definitely be one area to work on. But as I say, I did think it was the product of quite clever um, tactics in terms of their attack from Kieran Crowley. Yeah, I think that one had noticed that there was quite a possibility that they could get a lot of joy uh, by giving it width and attacking those wide channels, uh, particularly if they'd Ulster stretched. And they did that. But you're absolutely right. They also caught more joy than they may have figured by going direct as well. Um, they will feel, I would say, quite rightly, quite annoyed to have left Belfast without anything, um, mm. to have come back from where they were at. And they were dangerous even when they were behind. And to have not got anything out of the game, I think will be very disappointing for them. Because I think overall, they certainly did put it up to Ulster. Yeah, I thought it was quite weird at the end. I thought Ulster did deserve the fifth try. I thought they played just well enough to sort of earn that fifth try. But I also thought it wasn't really reflective on how Benetton played. Because I I agree with you, Michael. I thought they deserved to at least come away from it with a point. And maybe even if they went up the other end and got another try, they could have come away with two points from it. Because... They certainly did play well enough in, in patches. And certainly in that first half, they were really testing Ulster. Johnny, as you say, Taviara was brilliant. I thought Rizzo had a great game uh, in the second row for them as well. So a uh, bit of a strange feeling at, at the end there. Do, do you read too much into the yellow card period whenever Ulster were down to 14 men? Because if you take that out, and obviously it's quite hard to do whenever it's such a big part of the game, but if you take that out, Ulster only concede one try and it looks a lot better on the scoreboard. How do you reflect on the yellow card period? Yeah, I think the problem is that the problems that existed in the yellow card period existed either side of it as well. They were just exacerbated by the yellow card. So I don't think um, I don't think you can just throw it away. Plus the yellow card came, as much as it was a yellow card in isolation, I think it became much more likely that he was going to get carded for that because of the pressure that Benetton had been exerting and Ulster giving away a few penalties sort of in the build-up of that, putting pressure on themselves. So I think as much as the yellow card was the contributing factor, the issues that it really brought to the fore had been there before and after. So I don't think you, I don't think you discounted it at all, no. And then, you know, whether you've got 14 men or 15 men on the pitch, they were still especially again in that second try there were um, tackles that should have been made irrespective of what numbers you had inside or outside you but um, I just thought maybe Bennett and flagged a wee bit maybe in the in that last sort of half hour like as you said there you know for the first sort of 50 minutes basically whenever they took they took the lead there were decent value for that really I think it had been a sort of back and forth game Ulster had really started the better you have to credit Treviso as much as the yellow card opened the door for them. They sort of stormed through it with those with those two tries to be to be level at half time, and then probably just I suppose a product of having only played this only been their third game since February, whereas Ulster are a bit more battle hardened thanks to their knockout rugby. Well, I want to chat about the back row for a bit because Matty Ray was was named man of the match, and I thought he had a very good game, and it's obviously a position where. Ulster have been crying out for a bit of consistency. We've seen Nick Timoney in there, we've seen Ray in there, we've seen Jordy Murphy, uh, Sean Reedy. They all kind of rotate while Marcel could see as the constant. But Ray seems to have really hit a bit of form both just before lockdown and since lockdown as well. Michael, what have you seen from him and 
do you think he might be a long-term answer at blindside flanker? Um, well, I think you, you, you saw more of that there on Friday night than perhaps has necessarily been the case consistently through for him. Uh, he's there. One of his primary duties is a line-out option. And that's, you know, take that, take that box. But he also, yeah, you're right, he, he, did, he did put himself about there were some very strong carries. And I think more of the carrying had to fall to him because I think Marcel Castilla had a quieter game than we, we, we would have expected. So I think a lot of that onus uh, fell on him. And he did appear to step up. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, I, I think that um, it could well be the, the right. He is already, in, in, in essence, uh, quite possibly a regular, the regular six. I suppose if Jordy Murphy comes back, then what do you do with Sean Reedy? Do you play them six, seven, right bench? I don't know. Um, but he's a, you know, he, he certainly, he's not doing himself any harm at all by putting in performances like that. When Ulster were struggling, when Ulster needed direction and to get hold of the ball and, and, and to actually just not fling it around willy-nilly, he was one, he was foremost in coming through um, and, and trying to take that, that forward in a far more direct way. And then obviously you have David McCann coming off the bench and making that yeah, nice, that nice burst towards yeah. the end. I mean, we know we know about David McCann, and we know that you know. Hopefully, there's a very bright future for him, um, and you'll see a lot more of him. I would imagine around this period, if we can get these Pro 14 games running uh, on a regular basis, um, and again, he he will also, um, I think, uh, you know, the more game time he gets, the more comfortable he'll look, and, and I think will flourish at this level as well. So it's interesting you mentioned that, Michael, because uh, Dan Soper mentioned in yesterday's media briefing that the young guys aren't just there because they want to play them. It's because they're impressing in training, that they're really putting their hands up in training. So it's not like these are just token caps because people are talking about them. Um, what does that say about the young guys coming through? Just to sort of circle back around to that, because you know we have Stuart Murr making his first start. Uh, Michael Lowry and James Humer and I established members of the senior squad. You've got a lot of other guys who are really making some noise as well. What does it say about the mentality of these younger guys that they feel like they can really break into the squad, even whenever everybody's here? You know, Ulster don't have their Ireland internationals away yet. So they're still having to break through all these guys in the squad, and they're doing it. Yeah, well, you talk about um, mentality and training, I suppose, and... Um... Something that we spoke with Ian Henderson about maybe two weeks ago, and he said that he's never seen a batch of young players that um, are more, I suppose, ready for professional rugby at such a young age in terms of their application in training. And I think maybe just that added professionalism that they've had from just really sort of being on this pathway, I suppose, from whenever you're coming into NTS squads at like 16 now. So you maybe are exposed earlier to what you need to do and how you need to be to be a professional rugby player as opposed to just walking in on your first day after school. And I suppose that process in the academy, just starting that a little bit later now. So that group that would have come into... I suppose, an or, a more organized system, if you like. You know, Laurie and Hume would be among the first who did that that early. And you've seen them, uh, I suppose it was two, yeah, two years ago now, they would have made their, de their debuts. 
And now it almost feels like you're seeing the second wave of that coming now. Obviously, Stuart Moore, a little bit older than David McCann, uh, but probably would have been in this position earlier if not for injuries. And then you mentioned McCann as well. So I think an awful lot of it is probably down to attitude and application. If you're not showing in training, then you're not going to get picked ahead of somebody that's played 200 professional games and won 20-odd caps for Ireland. It's, it's just not going to happen. The bits that we don't see are the most important bits in a way. Mm. I suppose this is then a nice bridge into this week's game. How much do you think Ulster should continue with this youth mentality? And I'm, I know there are certain aspects that they're going to have to because they've got injuries in the centre, so they'll, they'll probably need to turn to Murnhume again. But whenever you go on, on the road, it's a lot different to playing at home where you've got maybe that bit more of a comfort. Going to the Ospreys this week, where do you strike that balance between keep promoting youth and making sure you have the experience to try and get a win away from home? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you'll see some of the more uh, grizzled campaigners coming back. If you'd like to think that maybe, you know, Alan O'Connor, Jordy Murphy will be back. But certainly, I, I don't see why Stuart Moore wouldn't go again. Um, though I don't think we're sure about Stuart McCluskey at the moment, are we? I don't think anything's really been said, has it? doesn't no. sound like he's going to be back. But... Yeah. Um, but the, the point is very valid. That's a completely different challenge to go away. And, and, and away form is not great. Um, but you have to do it sometime and you know there wouldn't be an awful lot of point would there in saying to Stuart Murray you did awfully well last Friday but I'm not going to take you to the, uh, to the Ospreys because you know, I, 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 you know that, it's not really it's too much too soon I don't think so I think you have to keep continuity going I think you have to allow players to bet in and to experience every aspect of what it's like to play at this level the good the bad the indifferent whatever Um so I, I don't know that there'll be a huge amount of change. I, I, we're assuming that some of the Ireland players may not be involved in this. Um, but that's where I'm, I'm reckoning you'll get the likes of Alan O'Connor and perhaps Geordie coming back in. Um, we're also not sure if Marcel is entirely 100% right. That, you know, they, they might rest him, they might not. Um, but uh, no, in terms of Stuart Moore, in terms of playing Michael Lowry again, do we know about Billy Burns for this week? I don't know that we do, do we? Not yet, no. No, I don't see why you wouldn't go again with Michael Lowry. Um, I don't think he's done anything wrong. I think he's brought plenty of, uh, lots of energy. Um, he looks very sharp. Um, and, and why not? You know, if this is the future, why is the future not here now? Just do it. A lot of interest over Ian Madigan and why, why he wasn't playing on Friday night. And obviously Lowry did a, did a great job at 10, but Madigan was there and as one of the extra men on Friday night. and Any reason why he wasn't involved, even on the bench with Bill Johnson named? Well, I think what you've seen really is a huge desire to reward players. We mentioned in training, but also for that A game as well. So you saw Dave O'Connor as well on the bench mm. and Bill Johnson, both of whom went well in that A game. Stuart Moore obviously went well in the A game and got the start. So, Whereas in the days of the Ravens, you know, playing for that team was seen as uh, a punishment and something to be avoided at all costs. I remember those days. It was not yeah, fun going down to watch the A-team. There's a different mentality, I think, now where if you can put your hands up in those games, like even Craig Gilroy getting, uh, getting 
getting a start, having been out of the team for for a while, having played well in the A game, you know. Mm. And it was funny him yeah. mentioning how excited he was to play in that game. You know, it wasn't a, yeah. it wasn't seen as I've been demoted. It was seen as here's my opportunity to impress. Yeah, and Adam McBurney, uh, another one. So you know, loads of those guys that went down and won in the RDS ended up getting a very tangible reward very quickly. And I think, yeah, Bill Johnson was another one of those. And like I thought, he, I thought Bill Johnson did rightly um, whenever he came on with the game still hanging in the balance. I thought Dave O'Connor actually had a really good uh, cameo off the bench. So it worked, really. I didn't realize this until Dan Super mentioned it, actually. That's the Ospreys' first away win. Or Sorry, last week's win over, over Edinburgh for the Ospreys was their first away win since April 2019. So they've had a long time to wait for a win on the road. Now they've got one. They come back to Wales this week. They face Ulster. They're going to be in a very positive mood. Uh, did either of you watch that game? I thought they looked virtually back to normal, if you consider that the last two years have been abnormal. Like At the end of the day, Ospreys have more, or certainly as many, international class players as the vast majority of teams in this league. And just how bad they've been, really, for the past sort of two years has been something of a mystery, really. Now, all that said, like going away to Edinburgh and winning is impressive, regardless of who you are. Like, if any team in the league does that, I think it's impressive. And we should also bear in mind that they beat Ulster when they last played as well, as whatever it was, seven months ago. Um, so it'll be, an, it'll be an interesting challenge, I think. Um, on the whole, I think the league is going to be far better if Ospreys are competitive again, to be honest, because we've spoken about this before. You need as many decent teams as you can, and you certainly need one of the Welsh teams, whether that's Ospreys, whether that's Scarlets, um, to be good. Otherwise, whenever you get to the playoffs, you're really going to be coming through. Well, it's going to be X amount of Irish teams and somebody else again, and you don't, you know, that's not what, really what you want. You also have to be wary, I suppose, of making too many judgments off the back of week one. So it's going to be interesting to see how the Ospreys pitch up. It'll be interesting to see how Edinburgh themselves fare, fare this week as well, because maybe just, the, I suppose, the toll of those two pretty crushing knockout defeats as well will have uh, been playing on their minds last weekend as well. So it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. And when you're looking at, Going away to a team that has the likes of Alan Wynne Jones in it, it should be a challenge. And I think it's going to be a, a much more reflective barometer of where Ulster are at very much in this season rather than last season and post lockdown, if you like. Mm. Ospreys had seven players named in the Wales squad announced today for the conclusion of the, of the Six Nations. Uh, Reese Webb is one of them, back from his sojourn across southern France and brief stop in England with Bath. Michael, Johnny mentioned that they're the defeat just before lockdown uh, to the Ospreys. How much do you think that'll be playing on Ulster's mind or do you think they'll not even think about that game given the circumstances? Pre-lockdown is, is so far away. I don't think that that's a factor here at all. Um, so I don't really think that the, the previous game so long ago is going to be hugely... Um, significant um, in the build-up to this and in how they perform. They know that it's going to be 
uh, a very, very different challenge and a much, much more rigorous one, you would assume, that the one that were put through on Friday night. Um, but I don't think that will prey in their minds, really, what happened all that, I mean, what is it now, seven months ago, whatever, yeah. is it more, remember? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, th I think it was the f first weekend in March, so I think you're right, I think it was seven, or may maybe last weekend in February, possibly. I'm not, was, yeah, uh, that's, that's the thing, it's, it's gone on so long now, who knows. <laughs> Sorry, Johnny was actually answering there, but... <laughs> um, how important is a win this week? We talked about last week how important it was for Ulster to get their campaign off to a winning start at home. Does it need to be a win this week to back it up? Or is this a week where a defeat wouldn't necessarily be the worst thing in the world if it happened? I don't think it's going to be the worst thing in the world because it's the second week of the season and you are going to lose probably four or five away games over the course of the season. Tell that to Leinster. One of them is going to be to Leinster. One of them is probably going to be the monster. So, like, I don't think, you know, you can be fatalistic about it and say they need to be winning these type of away games, but they got to the final last year having lost this exact type of away game. So, I think, again, it's very early in the season, so you're going to read an awful lot into it if they do lose, but it wouldn't be a massive shock to me if they did, I'll put it that way. Is there anything in particular you guys are looking for from this game in terms of how Ulster are playing. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to see from Ulster that maybe you didn't see last week or something that you want to see continued from last week that uh, you did see that you liked? Well, certainly their willingness to give the ball air and attack early in the game against Benetton. It, it looked, uh, we hadn't really seen an awful lot of that in recent um, weeks or at least going well. That, I would like to see some more of that and, and involving, you know, the ability of people like Moore and Hume and Larry to really uh, to find space and use their skills, their footwork, their speed to do that because I think that will stress defences. And it also gives a slightly different uh, approach, whereas Ulster might just be going route one a lot in the midfield. They're maybe going to try and vary that a bit more and bring a little bit more to their attack. I'd like to see a lot more of that, but at the same time, that's quite a, quite a risky thing to do. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, what their attitude towards that will be when they, when they go away. But it would be interesting to see some of that. And be also, I think it would be, if, if the likes of Craig Gilroy and Rob Little are involved again, it would be good to also see them more involved over the course of the game as well. That's what I would like to see. Because mm, they were a bit quiet against Benetton. We know how good strike runners both of them are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought that I thought Gilroy was super defensively. To be fair to him, had had some big moments early as well. Neither would be seen as particularly strong points of his game traditionally, but I thought he'd uh, evidently really worked on them. Saw some really nice moments from Marty Moore in terms of like tip-on passes and inside passes and just getting on the ball and stuff like that. Alan O'Connor's another player who's really come on in that area of his game. So I think if you see him come back in, I think that sort of interplay between the forwards really stresses opposition defences as well so you'd like to see a wee bit more of that Marcel Katsia had some nice moments in that regard as well I'd like to see McCann get another chance I don't know whether he will like as you say Adam you know the internationals aren't away yet so you know you've got uh, I suppose Nick Timoney and Jordy Murphy neither of whom were, were involved in that game to possibly get some minutes as well 
I think it's going to be a strange game in a lot of ways because, you know, the Six Nations is now sort of hurtling into view. And this really does feel like the end of an isolated block, even though it's only been two games, because you're not going to see an awful lot of your internationals now, basically, until Christmas. And like, I don't know what you guys think. It just, it feels like a very strange start to the season just with these two games. And then the dying week, and then knowing that the internationals are away. Yeah, it feels like we're maybe five or six games into the season already, rather than one. And it is just that whole post-lockdown, you know, going from one season to the next straight away. And I, I know the players have made a very conscious point of saying, no, 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 this is two seasons. We've made a very distinct split between the end of 1920 and the start of 2021. But it's got to be strange for them as well. As, as much as you say that, there's surely a part of you, especially in terms of their conditioning, which I assume has just continued straight on from one season to the next, that probably feels quite strange to them. Well, yeah, feeling strange as we're about to embark on the Sunday-Monday series of games as well over the next uh, number of weeks right up until Christmas. So anytime they are going to be involved after Saturday, this game at the Ospreys will either be a Sunday or a Monday, which will be even odder. I forgot about those Monday night kickoffs. 8.15 the Monday night, that's exactly what we all needed, isn't it? I don't think that'll be strange for the players though, because like I don't think it matters to the players what day of the week it is, because they just move their schedule for the week accordingly. Like you know, it's not that long ago that they would have always, always, always played Friday. Now you're seeing way more Saturday games, and it just means that they start their week a day later, and presumably for Monday it'll just mean that they start their week two or three days later. And you know, if in their heads their weekend becomes whatever it would be, Tuesday and Wednesday. I don't think it'll be that different for them so much as it is really for fans here. You know, going a weekend, I suppose, without rugby and then going to work on Monday and Ulster playing at the end of the day. It's weird for them, weird for us, but I don't think the players will notice too much of a difference. Well, anyway, this week's game is Saturday. Kicks off at 5.15pm. You can follow all the action on our live blog and the Belfast Telegraph website. I will be taking care of that. So I'd be delighted if you could join me. So on to the international chat. Ireland are set to announce their squad this week for the conclusion of the Six Nations Championship. Due to technical difficulties, unfortunately, Michael has had to drop out. So there's just myself and Jonathan who will be taking control of this section. Uh, Jonathan, who are we expecting from Ulster will be called up and who maybe is a dark horse to get their first call up or maybe a recall? It'll be an interesting one, I think, because obviously just with the number of games, you're going to need quite a wide panel. I'd say you've got your definites and your obvious contenders. Stockdale, Henderson, Cooney, Herring would be your four, I suppose, definites. Um McCluskey and Burns, fitness permitting, given that they were in the um, in the original Six Nations squad, I would say would be in this one as well. Do you think we'll get a decent idea of their injury profiles based on whether or not they're in? I know McCluskey, yes. McCluskey's maybe a bit of a grey one because he's so in and out of the squad, but if Burns wasn't in, would that sort of be an indication that he's maybe a bit of a longer term issue than what we thought? Yes, we certainly would be missing for the first sort of two for the next two weeks, I suppose, because the squad will be gathering really at the end of this weekend. So those two would be in fitness permitting. The interesting one I think is going to be Marty Moore because obviously there's some injury problems at Tighthead. You could see Finley Beelham down a Connor come back in, 
Um, but Marty Moore would really be the next man up, I suppose, and just in terms of tight heads who are starting for their province, has to put him in a decent position, you would say. Mm. It's a real shame for Tom O'Toole because he looked like he was in line to really profit from tight furlong not being there. And, uh, you know, he had certainly started well after lockdown too, that you really thought that this could have been the chance where he actually got his first cap for Ireland. But unfortunately, it looks like that's going to be uh, going to be pushed back due to his injury. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think he would have had a really good chance of um, of getting a cap at some stage over these next sort of seven games, you know. Um, so that is going to be disappointing for him. And I, you mentioned Furlong being out there. So that's obviously what's, I suppose, created all these questions around the Ireland tight head shirt, you know. Thankfully, we're not in the days of only having Mike Ross or only having John Hayes, as it seemed to be for about two decades. There are uh, there are other options there. John Ryan's obviously been uh, started for Munster there at the weekend. So you've got him, you've got Porter. Stephen Archer, I suppose. We mentioned Bielham, Murr. So that's going to be an interesting one. And obviously, you'd expect Furlong to be back at some stage during this window as well. So, fairly disappointing for Tom O'Toole, who, without that injury, was making great strides, even just post-lockdown. Just for reference, today we also have named the 38-man squad for their games, just to give an indication of how the other nations are kind of stocking up their their core for for this autumn series. Is there anybody maybe could be sneaking in the back door for a call-up. I know Dan Soper was asked yesterday about the possibility of James Hume being called up. Personally, I think there's definitely an Ireland call-up in him down the line, but I would say it's maybe a bit too early for him right now. I don't know what you think. No, I feel exactly the same. Like, you know, he's trying to establish himself as a starter at Ulster. And I think you should do that before you're getting into the Ireland setup. really. Possibly even just... I think in terms of the learning that he can do at Ulster during this period where there are going to be absentees, there's going to be a lot of games from there. And you're talking about somebody who's only played, what, 21, 22 professional games, I think. Um, so I think really, as much as I think there's, I agree with you, there's a call up, there's a call up there in the future. I think now it would be too soon. Obviously, we'll, we'll touch on this a lot more down the line whenever we actually get to the games starting. But just looking ahead at this period for, for Ireland, you know, you've got the Six Nations to finish. You've got this autumn series and whatever sort of guys it's taking with the eight different teams. How important is this for Ireland? Because we, we heard last week that all, all the World Cup seedings are done now. They can't affect that by winning any games. World ranking points are obviously there for every game, but just do you feel like these games are really must-win games for Ireland, or do they just sort of feel like they're there for the sake of being there right now? No, I don't. I don't feel like they're must-win games. I think they're there because they need to make the money by having them on TV. I think when you look at the restrictions that are coming in down south, I feel like they're gonna have a very empty feel to them. Obviously, stadiums are going to be empty. 
I don't think personally that anybody should care about the eight nations because we're told that we should care, you know. Just inventing tournaments does nothing for nothing for me anyway. Like I'm not going to care about the games any more than I would otherwise because there'll be a notional trophy for the first, the third, the fifth, and the seventh best teams. Is it? Is that, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, like, it's like in it's like in football preseason when they start creating these wee mini tournaments as if they matter, but they're really just. You know they're still preseason friendlies. Yeah, that uh, Peace Cup has pride of place in Tottenham's trophy cabinet. I'll have you know. <laughs> not, not, not forgetting the the Audi Cup championship, but um, I just like the legacy of why these games are happening is going to be seen as cru- as due to the coronavirus. So no matter what happens in them, like history will view them as the coronavirus games. Because mm, we're, we're never likely to see a tournament like this again. You know, the Six Nations isn't going to expand to eight nations on a permanent basis. And there we're aren't enough South, Southern Hemisphere teams to create a big tournament like that. Sorry? <laughs> we might have seven soon enough, but one of them will be South Africa. So True. I'm trying to work out how they're going to do the travel down to South Africa on a weekly basis, like that's not going to work. <laughs> When's this in the Six Nations or in the Yeah, yeah. no, in the Seven Nations or whenever, seven nations, so. whenever South Africa come in. I assume South Africa would ha- either have to play all their games away or all their home games in like a block. Well, you know better than me. I've never been, but the time zone doesn't affect you and the flight's not that long. It's eleven hours. Like it's yeah. it's a fair bit, and you you've got to bear in mind the difference in climate, and depending on where you're playing, say the altitude or you know the conditions. So, I I would say just just for the sake of not having to have an eleven hour flight ever, you know, there's a reason why the South African teams went on extended away trips. You know, it was because they didn't want the other teams having to travel back and forth so much. So I would say for the Seven Nations, it would maybe have to be the same thing. You either play all your home games at the start and then go away, or you have South Africa come up and sort of have a have a neutral stadium be their home base or something like that. Anyway, those are discussions. Well, I'd for... like to see it not happen anyway, just to be clear, because I think the Six Nations is as close to a perfect tournament as you can get. Bold statement right, right there. Bold statement. <laughs> with the possibility of Italy improving or the sixth team improving, but there's a, there's our headline right there. <laughs> the Six Nations is as close to a perfect tournament as possible, says Jonathan Bradley. Well, I think when you compare it to the vast <laughs> amount of problems that every other rugby tournament in the world has, the Six Nations is the best. Mm. No, I, I can't disagree with that. Like every every other rugby tournament in the world has massive flaws. Mm. moving back to the autumn we're going to nail our colours to the mast right now who's getting called up we're going with Stockdale, Henderson Herring and Cooney as bankers are we going for anybody else as a dark horse to get a call up or are we going with just the four those four and then Burns and McCloskey if they're fit that would be six Marty Murr will he be there 
let's say yes. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I think you'll be there. Yeah. So we'll say seven. Um, we have one listener question, and it's my fault it's only one because I asked the question on Twitter way too late because I completely forgot about it. So that's my bad. Um, but it's from a holiday and the whole operation falls apart. <laughs> Here, just be glad you're getting a podcast. All right. I'm not computer savvy. I don't know how to put all this together. Um, but uh, it's from a friend of mine who has very unhelpfully decided he wants to re- remain anonymous. Um, but he asks, in honour of uh, transfer deadline day in the football, who would be the best rugby coach to interview through a window of their car? So very similar to Harry Redknapp coming out of, uh, coming out of Tottenham's training ground. Who would be the best um, rugby coach to chat to in that fashion on rugby deadline day? It's got to be Richard Cockrell, surely. Good shout. Very good shout. I don't know if Richard Cockrell's ever um, said no comment to a question, but even in the last week or two where he's suggesting the need for a salary cap in the Pro 14, he always gives good value. So I'd say Richard Cockrell. Steve Diamond maybe along the same vein. I was thinking Brendan Venter. <laughs> well, he uh, he could well Stonewall. <laughs> he just threw the question back at you, no matter what you asked. Just exactly. question question what you're even talking about. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Go down the line of uh, whenever you said transfer deadline day, of who would you want in a transfer? No, no. <laughs> we we've done enough discussion about transfers and who else you're going to sign. But I think that the concept of a rugby transfer deadline day would be interesting but it just wouldn't work with the whole system anyway enough about transfers enough about enough about all that that is all the time we have for this week as i said earlier osprey's game on saturday quarter past five we will have all the action on our live blog on the belfast telegraph website Uh, but until next week whenever gareth will be back in the host chair uh we say thank you very much from michael sadler who unfortunately had to go from jonathan bradley Cheers, thank you. And from myself, Adam McKendry, thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week.